Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. A podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Catholics with Bibles. I'm Ryan Pollock. I'm Chase the Krause. And if you are listening to this, I am already dead. Um, (laughs) (laughs) greetings from the past that's right we're recording this episode in advance of um the arrival of my new baby the perusia of my new baby coming up soon so chase is going to be on his own for a little bit but we'll throw this episode in there in the the future times so All, all i'm saying is that uh you should be able to record a podcast while sleep deprived I think so. I mean, it might be, that might be really fun for everybody else. Yeah. I'm sitting there longing for the sweet release of death after having <laughs> only two hours of sleep Dude, that night. And that honestly is like, I tell people who are expecting for the first time, um, not that I'm like super experienced. I have two kids. Um, but I tell them like, listen, dude, that first month, there's nothing you can do. You're just going to be exhausted. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah. it doesn't even matter if you have a quote unquote good sleeper, a good newborn sleeper is still not a great sleeper. And you're just just buckle up. You well, know? now I know this is controversial, but we did bed share at first, um, and that means we everybody got a ton of sleep. <laughs> um, we're not going to do that again because then it took way too long to get her in her crib, and yeah. she couldn't sleep without us. But if you can get that, uh, if you can get the balance right, yeah. we did the uh, the bedside bassinet, mm-hmm. and so it's mm-hmm. a bit of an easier. So you we you know we both babies were originally right by mom, but like in the bassinet, right. And then we moved him to like the foot of the bed after a while. And then we transitioned into like their crib. So it worked out well. Um, but like, it's still like every time the baby's up, like you're all up. You remember on the office when Jan makes Michael sleep at the foot of the bed on, on the Ottoman? That's what I'm, that's what I'm imagining you. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. But with the baby. <laughs> you doing for yeah, your yeah, kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's really comfortable, really roomy. Down that's there. right. Yeah. The only, uh, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, kid advice with two, uh, parents of, Three and unders. Yeah, um, we're basically <laughs> we're basically experts. You're welcome. That's right. You get this with Bibles, baby advice one hundred and one. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so this is this is the last episode dun, dun, of, dun, this, dun. of this series of this mini series on the unseen realm. Yeah, yeah. It's all good things must come to an end, and that includes books about spiritual forces. And speaking of the end. Our Greek word of the day, apocalypse. Oh, hey, transition. What a, what a great transition. Watch that out. Was. Bam. Yeah. So, apocalypsis is mm-hmm, uh, the mm-hmm. Greek word, which very obviously means apocalypse. Uh, fun fact this word in Greek does not mean like Armageddon or like end of time or like death nothing, and destruction. Nothing sci fi, nothing, nothing, uh, yeah. nothing fantasy. Yep. Um, it just means uh, to unveil, to unveil, unveil. <laughs> <laughs> it means not to eat veal. For yeah, don't reason. eat veal. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a drawing back of the curtain. It's an unveiling of some kind of truth or reality. Um, it, it's linked to the word mysterion a lot of the times. It's an uh, apocalypsis of a mysterion. So you unveil something of a mystery, right? So, um, yeah. And so the reason that the book of Revelation or the apocalypse of John is called that is because he is opening up the curtain of heaven, if you will. Um, and with that comes some really trippy imagery sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, so my last sermon as an Episcopal priest was on John 17. And we talked a little bit about how Jesus lets the disciples listen in on his high priestly prayer 
which is itself an apocalyptic act because yeah. he's showing them the kind of relationship that he's had with the father since um, before there was anything, before and, there was a world. Yeah, when he's inviting us to. So like Christian prayer, like authentic Christian prayer is a participation in the prayer of Christ, right? I mean, that's, and which is like, when you actually really think about that, like it's actually just mind blowing, right? So like literally to authentic prayer is you participating in the conversation between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Mm-hmm, like, that, mm-hmm. if that doesn't blow your mind, you haven't thought about it enough. Yeah, seriously. What, what does the letter to the Romans say? The Spirit intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. So even when you're uh, sort of stumbling along in prayer and you don't know what the heck to say to the Lord, um, you can have confidence that the Holy Spirit is doing some translation work yeah, in that process. That's right. So, um, yeah, we're briefly going to just touch on the last section here before we kind of get into an overall like synopsis of the book in general and his like his key points, takeaways, some which we agree with more than others. Um, none of them are like bad necessarily in and of themselves. Um, but yeah, so he, he dives into Revelation a little bit here at the end because, you know, end of the New Testament. It comes last, you might have right. heard. Yeah, chronological and whatnot. Um, but one, one idea that he briefly says, but that we, we like and are going to expound upon and kind of, we're going to put words in his mouth a little bit and take it to its logical conclusion a little bit. Um, is this idea of uh, theosis or Christosis or deification in, in Revelation? So Heiser makes this point, and he looks at Revelation, and he says, you know, when, when Christ comes, he returns with this uh, council army. And so we've talked about th- this idea of Heiser and the divine council in the show before. Uh, we think he's, he uses a little too much in the New Testament, but... You yeah. can't just cram that into, like, every verse in the Bible. Right. It's like not everything is divine <laughs> counsel, right? Um, but in this, in this section in particular, uh, I mean, it's... Yeah, when you read the Revelation, when Jesus comes back, it isn't just with an angel army. Yeah, yeah. It's with saints. It's with holy ones. Um, yeah. People who have believed in his name and in the language of Revelation have conquered and overcome and have the white stone and all of that. Good stuff. Uh, in this section, he's talking about uh, the way that Revelation will pick up imagery from Psalm 2 to talk about the return of Jesus. So this is from Revelation 2, 26 through 28, and then uh, I'll read Heiser's little commentary on it. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. The implication, this is Heiser. Um, yeah, John doesn't say the implication, of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the implication, of course, is that the heavenly armies who return with Christ will be more than just non-human members of the divine council. The host will include believers who have been exalted into its membership, return to displace the gods of the nations. Christian, do you know who you are? The day will come when the Elohim will die like men, and you will judge angels. And he cites 1 Corinthians 623, which is just a karate chop of a passage. There. That's, that's right. That's terrific. Yeah, and so this kind of goes into a bit of, oh, you can call it systematic theology or just dogmatics in general, but um, this, this makes sense because, what, you know, when you ask the question, well, what is heaven? Heaven is um, our participation in the unity of the Trinity to a certain extent, right? So heaven is, is a participation in the divine nature, right? Can, a, I, can I quote your boy Ratzinger? Let's do it. He says that one is in heaven when and to the extent that one is in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Talking about how heaven is less a place to which one goes 
rather a union with with the Trinity, as, yeah. you, as you as you just said. Yeah. You said it. He says it a bit more eloquently than me. Um, I guess I'll let Ratzinger take the win on this one. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's kind of a big deal. Yeah, a little bit. Um, but anyway, so when you when you ask that question of okay, so heaven is participation in the divine nature, then you ask okay, then how do we get there? Because we don't have a divine nature; we have a human nature. Um, and so this is why the incarnation was a necessity, not just like a nice, like cool thing God did. Right. So we have that, you have not just Aquinas, but other people said, you know, God became man so that man may become God. Athanasius. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think, and I think it's Gregory of Nazianzen. Uh, go ahead and get on the Google machine and, and check out if I'm right here. But I think it's Nazianzen who says, um, uh, shucks. He said something. He said something. About oh, this. Oh, curses. It's gone from me now. It'll come back later if it was worth saying. <laughs> I promise. But it's essentially the same lines, right? So, like, we, God had to become man. That which is assumed, not assumed, is not healed. Hey, yeah, look at that. There Here's it is. Quote. There it is. Um, yeah, well, and so basically what he's saying is, so, okay, so heaven is the participation by nature. We don't have a divine nature. So by the, by the second person of the Trinity who completely possesses the divine nature and who he is, and him... Uh, taking on humanity and then at the uh, ascension the human nature of jesus enters fully into the participation of the trinity so it's through our union with the humanity of christ that then we can enter heaven right and i think we got to give heiser credit here for focusing on this because this is something that his protestant brethren they don't like they don't talk too much about it at all they much prefer uh, a more juridical or judicial model of the atonement and salvation wherein you have God acquitting us as the divine right. judge looking to the merits of Jesus who's putting spiritual monies into our account and you're that a sort pile of, of poop covered in snow yeah that kind of which is of course like not untrue and not um not unbiblical but they often miss what um St. Peter might call a participation in the divine nature yeah so uh, a catholic belief you are it's not that you, it's not a legal fiction. It's not you're a pile of crap and then God just magically poofs you yes, into heaven. Right. It, it's rather, no, you are actually changed. And this is what we call theosis or deification or Christosis. So basically the transformation into div- divinity or Christ or whatever you want to call it, God. If, right? you, if you want to see how often, like how big a theme this is in the New Testament, just look at the letters of Paul and see how many times he says that someone is in Christ. Christ. Yeah. In Christ happens all the time. Yeah. So this idea of Christosis, right? So you are uh, a great uh, biblical scholar to read that I've talked about on the show before is Michael Gorman. Um, he's actually a Methodist guy, but he teaches at a Catholic seminary. Hey-o. Um, he has a book called uh, Apostle of the Crucified Lord, looking at the letters yeah, of St. Paul. I in read particular. that book once yeah. upon a time. It's yep. bomb. It's mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about Christosis, right? It's all about, uh, and he, well, his, his word is cruciformity right? You, you enter into Christ by being cruciform in shape, right? Just like Christ was in the empty of himself on the cross. Um, and so, yeah, for Heiser, he points this out that um, it's after this Christosis happens that AKA you become a saint and you enter into his, his word, the divine council, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, I mean, we don't become big G God, but we participate as to the best of our ability, right? Obviously Mary being the best participatory, participatory, person? I guess yeah. I think I told you at the beginning about an old liturgy professor I had who said that Christianity is basically an Elohim replacement project, which is mm. a quote that Heiser here would like. But uh, if God has lost a significant portion of his divine counsel at the beginning of things, um, and he's trying to get humans to be a part of his earthly counsel and his divine counsel and eventually join these realms that were made disparate, uh, we see this kind of thing coming to a beautiful close in the book of Revelation where it says that 
uh, among the many rewards that belong to believers in Jesus, uh, this idea of sitting on the divine throne yeah. with the Lord. Like right. we, we're all sitting on the throne together, which yeah. you probably shouldn't think too literally about yeah, yeah, yeah. a, a you're chair not, that could fit everybody <laughs> in the world on. But yeah. the idea is that you share in God's rule and reign the way he initially intended it to be in Eden. Yeah, see, we participate in the divine nature fully. And so, and this gets really cool. Um, and this is not like dogmatic teaching, but like it's really cool Catholic thought. Um, when you when you think about the qualities that the risen body will had will have, right? So like we'll be able to like run and not grow weary. What's the technical term for that? I forget. There's some like technical term for not uh, being tired. Having rad legs. That's like right. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, being able to uh, think of a place you want to be and then magically, not magically, but like just poofing there. Um, and we see this like because we look at uh, Jesus's resurrected body, right? So Jesus is able to like walk through walls. He's able to change his appearance at will. Um, and eat some uh, fish. Right, you still would eat. So fish tacos yeah. will be present in the New Jerusalem. That's right. Yeah. Um, all, my, all the Californians will be like, let's go. Yep. Um, and, but, and the reason I say Jesus is able to change his appearance is because every time Jesus appears, not every time, almost every time Jesus appears in the New Testament, uh, his, his disciples are like, who is this guy? Like, we don't recognize him. You yes, know? that's right. That's yeah. right. And then and he it, reveals himself, yes. right? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. And then he's able to just like poof into places, right? So theologians will take this and kind of run with it as in like, we'll be able to do the same thing like in our resurrected glorified bodies. So remember that re the resurrection isn't like a, a resuscitation, right? It's not like you were dead and now you're like, <gasps> I can breathe again. But rather it's like your, our bodies are going to be deified. Reconstituted. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. In yeah. Christ. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's kind of the last section, which is like cool. It's cool stuff to, to talk about. Um, if you want to dive deep into it, you can. Um, Revelation is a blast and a half. Yeah, and it, if you've ever tried to read Revelation, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. Uh, there's just, you need a good commentary, I think, for Revelation. Um, mm -hmm. Scott Hahn actually does a really good job uh, with Revelation. Now, granted, everything Scott Hahn ever talks about is covenantal theology and, and liturgical theology, which is, which is good. It's just like a certain hermeneutic that he reads it through. Yep. Um, but it's a good solid place to start as a Catholic before you start reading it in other ways, I guess. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book called um, it's in the new Testament theology series. It's just called theology of the book of revelation by an Anglican scholar named Richard Bauckham, which I think is pretty, uh, it's been a while since I've read it, but I believe it is pretty consonant with all of the, Church is teaching on this. Uh, there's another one called Revelation in the End of All Things. Um, if you Google that title, that will come up. It's another good one. Uh, I, I've had the privilege of teaching through the book of Revelation over the course of one you're, summer. You're a brave um, man. <laughs> well, it was one of, it's, one, it's like those summer Sunday school classes, you know, where like the only people who are there are the diehards, you know, oh, like okay. the ones who really want to They're study not really going to question like, you know. <laughs> well, the questions they ask will be good and they'll pay attention, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's a little plug for summer Sunday school activities there. That's right. But... Uh, yeah, Revelation's a blast and a half, but it's one of those books that you need some preparation for. You need to understand what apocalyptic literature is right. and how it it's works. It's a genre. Yeah, it's like, so if you're going to go and you're going to watch Star Wars, like you shouldn't expect Star Wars to play by the rules of Pride and Prejudice right. or, or vice versa. Yeah. So, but once you know the genre conventions and once you know kind of how these stories are told, the things that happen in there make a lot more sense. So I don't know if it's just the way my brain works, but like I have always avoided doing Bible studies or teaching on the book of revelation and, mm. re and apocalyptic genre in, in general. Um, I remember studying it like in my masters and stuff and, and kind of going deep into it, but I guess it's just, my brain never really wrapped around it. Like I never really overly enjoyed the weirdness of it. And I think you kind of have to like the weirdness of it to a certain degree. But, um, and so I was always much more like, I just want to talk about Paul. I just yeah. want to talk about Paul. I want to talk about soteriology. 
That's my that's my wheelhouse. So maybe we should talk about Revelation just to make me talk about it. Well, I'm I'm kind of a nerd. I so I really like um, sci-fi and fantasy and um, Dungeons and Dragons, and spaceships and all that stuff. Yeah. Dune's coming out soon. It's going to be. I should read that book. I've Timothy heard. Chalamet. Should I read the book? Is it, is it worth uh, reading? It's, I mean, it's a classic, but it is kind of dry. Um, uh, so maybe I shouldn't read. David Lynch did an adaptation of Dune in the '80s that uh, is not very good. But it's <laughs> I, a, that one came across my Amazon feed yeah, at one point. Yeah, it's, was, it's a fun popcorn movie, I suppose. But uh, if if you like that kind of stuff, you would love the Book of Revelation. Um, so a little commercial there, there the book go. of Revelation. Yeah. So, um, so with that, we wanted to kind of summarize the unseen realm uh, in high, with using Heiser's point. So at the end of his book, the epilogue, uh, the epilogue, and which means uh, above the log. I'm um, just kidding. Um, <laughs> but um, he he talks about like five different kind of like takeaways that he wants us to have uh, from reading this book, and he wants the reader to have from reading this book. So we're just gonna kind of go through them. Uh, talk about you know what he's saying, pros and cons, and like some nuances as a Catholic that you should have with 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 them um, as they come up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So point number one in his epilogue here, let the and these are his points for Bible study at large. Let the Bible be what it is, and be open to the notion that what it says about the unseen realm might just be real. Yeah, which we can totally agree with. I think. Um, I think as Catholics, I and mean, we talked about this when we first started this book. I don't think Catholics have quite a part of a time with this spiritual aspect because of our sacramental word worldview and the fact that like, we, as, yeah, as Catholics, like we know demons are still real and like exorcists are a thing. Yeah. You know? But as modern people living in the West, uh, we can't avoid that temptation to see everything through rationalistic, right. like STEM yeah, terms. Yeah, yeah. Right. So you spend all your time in the Exodus trying to figure out like how it could be that the Red Sea could have parted naturally. Or right. Something or like, like I've heard it, I've heard it, uh, when Jesus walked on water, it's because magically he stepped onto an iceberg because it, the, can, the Good lake can... Lord. Yeah, the, the lake... bizarre. Yeah, because <laughs> some historical critic was like, well, you know, the lake can freeze over at certain points. And so what happened was, you know, Jesus stepped out on an iceberg and it started floating and Peter did the same thing, but his iceberg started melting. Jeez and Louise. Yeah, you can get super... You ever not, tried yeah. to walk on an iceberg before? That's right. This guy's never out. spent a winter yeah. in Wisconsin. That's right. It ain't that easy. Yeah. And then and then other things like, you know, in the multiplication of loaves, it's like, oh, Jesus shared what little he had, and so he inspired others to share. That was the real that was the real miracle. Ooh. Yeah. Which is not what it says in the text, right? Um, and so yeah, so when you read Old Testament, New Testament, um, don't don't just dismiss offhand like these these spiritual passages, right? Yeah, and and that these guys wrote thousands of years ago doesn't mean that, like, you're smarter than them. <laughs> yeah, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> or, or that your assumptions about how the world works are better or more true than theirs. Right, totally. Yeah, and so his second point, the content of the Bible needs to make sense in its own context, whether or not it makes sense in ours. And this is kind of... Uh, the tool of a historical critical method, right? So there's different tools of the historical critical method. This one kind of being the Zitz at Leben. Um, did I say that right? It's German. S s uh, setting in life, yeah. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Yep. So it just means um, that there's, when you read the book, when you, the authors lived in a certain time in a certain place, and so that means they're writing to a certain audience at a certain time in a certain, and this is Old Testament and New Testament, right? Um, but yeah, so just, just keeping in mind that the, 
it has to make sense contextually. Right? Yeah, the, the, those folks who wrote back then are going to make references to things that they don't feel the need to explain. Right, like because, locations. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, because their audience knows the things to which they we're, refer. We're Tarshish is. Yeah, you don't have to say, and Tarshish was the city over here, yonder, and such and such. Yeah, like, yeah. All your people already know that. So just for fun fact, if you've ever read you know, Tarshish in, in Psalms or anything, it, it just means the, 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 the Spain, essentially. Like that's where Tarshish is. It's the furthest away of the known world of the time. So it's like the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, so like, right, that little small gap between Spain and Africa, that's Tarshish. It's right? the place on the map where it says, here there be dragons. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Or where you're worried you might fall off the edge of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, and it's, it's one of the things that the, a lot of the times biblical scholars will try to identify these locations in the Old Testament. And sometimes the humble ones will say, we think it might be this place, but we really don't know, right? And that, unfortunately, there's really no way until we discover some kind of ge like archaeological evidence, there are tons of places that are referenced in the Old Testament where we just don't know where they are. Yep, right? we talked in the last episode about the Mount of Transfiguration. And we're not totally sure which yeah. mountain that was. There's there's a there's a church built on one that we think it's that one, but and I'm more than happy to to call it that one. Why not? Yeah, because for grins and giggles. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and even like uh, you know, we can take in faith that um, the true cross was found at that certain location by that empress chick that I forgot her name. Um, but like even like when if you ever like visit a reliquary in Rome or anywhere, if you if it says piece of the true cross. Um, it, that's what it is. it's a piece of that finding geographically of they found three crosses and you know somebody was healed by touching one all these things but dogmatically speaking you don't have to believe that it's a piece of the true cross like it's not the church doesn't say no you have to believe this it's like we just take it in faith that it is right and there's miracles to kind of back it up right um, but anyway context is important yeah it wouldn't have made it into that reliquary if it couldn't do something right yep, yep. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah the third point uh, how the biblical writers tie passages together for interpretation should guide our own interpretation of the Bible. Yep. Uh, intertextuality is a fancy word for this, but basically uh, the the Bible quotes itself yeah. quite a bit. Canonical um, criticism. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, we were just talking about the Revelation's employment of imagery from Psalm 2. So if you have a good Bible with a... Uh, a little cross-reference section in the middle, mm. perhaps. Go and look up those passages, especially where the New Testament quotes the Old. Yeah. Um, we, we often forget that like the New Testament is like the fourth quarter yeah. of the Bible, and there's three other quarters. Yep. Um, so there's a whole lot of stuff that, that uh, can get lost if you're not familiar with your mm -hmm. Old Testament. And fun fact, there's actually a passage of the Bible uh, that was quoted in Matthew that's actually not in the Old Testament, so we're actually not really sure where that comes from. Um, oh, which you remember which one? Uh, it's the part... Uh, it's early in Matthew. Um, I, yeah, I should know the reference before I bring it up, huh? <laughs> um, it's uh, it, it, I believe it's a place talking about um, what was what was uh, guy who killed people with jawbone. Samson. Samson. Samson was a what was he the hair thing couldn't cut the hair. Nazarite. Thank you, Nazarite. Um, and there's a place in Matthew where he says. Um, he shall be born a Nazarene or something like that. And it's a, it's a, it's a parent quote, but it's actually not a, a phrase in the old Testament. Oh, belong to the oral tradition. Yeah. Mayhaps. Yeah. So, yep. um, but yeah, so basically, but it's just important to know the old Testament when reading the new Testament and new Testament, reading the old Testament in various ways. Uh, but even the old Testament, like a lot of the, especially the prophetic literature um, and some of the, and like, other uh, the Psalms, prophetic literature, wisdom literature. If you don't know, like the Torah, for example, you're not gonna you're gonna miss a 
bunch of references, right? Um, and even when you read something like the Song of Songs, right? Um, no matter, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways you can interpret that, but there's a ton of references to like temp- the temple, essentially, right? But if you don't, if you've never read the description of the temple, you'll miss it, mm-hmm. right? So it's really important to know at least the general gist of Old Testament passages, right? Yeah. Is the Bible is the Bible seventy three books? Yes. Is it one book? Also, yes. <laughs> yes. So, and. <laughs> so, so if you if you jump in at the end and just read the stuff about Jesus and the the church, and then you go on your merry way, you're gonna miss so much right. of what's going on there. There's so many references. Yeah. Well, and even like when you read the letter of Hebrews, right? So. Um, the, the Geshara Rawa or whatever it's called. Um, it's a Hebrew term that rabbis, you see, I just totally butchered the term, but um, <laughs> sorry uh, if there are any rabbis. That's listening. right. Yeah. It's, but it's a, it's a, it's a, a tool that rabbis would use uh, when giving, you know, sermons, if you will, basically. Um, and you see, when you read Hebrews, you see this all the time it's that the, the author of Hebrews will make a point and then he'll say, as it says in this passage and this passage and this passage, he'll stack old Testament passages on top of each other. Um, and so, once again, but if you don't know what passage he's referring to, then it's kind of hard to see the point he's making. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and St. Paul uses the same technique too, you know, in Romans and elsewhere. I mean, if you don't have a good grasp of like the covenant history of Israel and you try to read like Revelation, oh, yeah. like just give up, throw yeah. in the towel. Yeah. Like yeah. you're going to lose so much of it. A great book for that is Catholic, uh, what's it called? Catholic uh, Introduction to the Old Testament um, by Brent Petrie and Bergsma. Another one is. Um, by Bergsma, if you just type in Bergsma, uh, in, introduction to the Bible, he has this really cute small book on like covenantal theology of like the Old Testament, and mm-hmm. New Testament and stuff. Anyway, here's a, I, have, I have another book plug there along those lines. Um, there is a, a book called The Commentary on the New Testament Use of the Old Testament by Beelan Carson, which literally just, it's a, it's a hefty book. It's like a thousand or so pages. Casual reading. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's more for reference. Um, but you, uh, it lists every single time that the, in you know, insofar as one can do something like this, that it's their attempt to list every time that the New Testament quotes or alludes to the Old Testament, which That's is a lot, which is great. Um, you can't read that one on the bus unless you bring a hefty backpack and a magnifying glass. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, his next point that he brings up, point four or five, is uh, how the New Testament writers repurpose the Old Testament is critical for biblical interpretation. Um, which is something that we kind of just talking about, but, uh, but we also have to know that in the new Testament, the, the writers of the new Testament, the letters, gospels, um, they were, their eyes were opened by Christ, right? That we, we even read about that in Luke, right? That Christ opened, um, to them, the, the purpose of the scriptures that refer to him. Right. And so we have to know that even as they quote these things, it's important to know the original context, but knowing that they're also, not There's a cre- it's a creative action that's yeah, happening here. They're not under, reading into the text, but under yeah. under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But being able to look at these Old Testament texts that talked about the glory of the King of Israel and say, "Oh, this was actually talking about Jesus," or right. it can be read this way with a Christian lens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, because um, that's the point. Of the new, I mean, the Bible in general isn't a scientific manual, right? We want it to be because of just the way where our brains are kind of wired now as Americans, as people in the West and postmodern and all these things, but the the Bible, and this is kind of Hydra's point too, right? The Bible isn't scientifically trying to prove that the earth was created in seven days. That's not the point of, of Genesis, right? Yes. Um, the Bible, and this is actually that, if you ever read any of Jordan Peterson's work, um, so Jordan Peterson is a psycho- psychologist, Canadian. He's agnostic, I think. 
But he actually, I think he's, he's pretty spot on where he says the point of the Old Testament passages isn't to prove scientific truth. It's to teach people how they should act, right? And then Bishop Barron will take this further. He's like, no, it's trying to teach them how they should worship, right? It's proper worship, right? Um, so yeah, so just keeping that in mind, um, you know, sometimes you're going to see this Old Testament passage, you're going to look it up and you're going to be like, wait, what the junk? Why is it talking about, why, why are you quoting this passage in this, in this context, right? So just know that the authors of the New Testament do throw you curveballs every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Should we move on to point five? Let's do it. Metaphorical meaning isn't less real than literal meaning, however that's defined. Mm, uh, yeah. Yeah, and this is probably more important for his audience than for us. Right. Uh, I, you, you don't meet a ton of Catholics who are like, the world had to be made in exactly seven, <laughs> seven days, days or my faith is ruined. That's right. Will, the earth is only 3,560 years old. And if, I, if someone proves me more wrong, I will become an atheist. You know, that's that's right. just yeah. not an attitude that you see too much. But uh, yeah, again, going back to this point about knowing the genre conventions, if you're reading in the Psalter that David says his heart is poured out as wax, we ought not to try and find out if there was a point in human history where hearts were made out of a like waxy substance that right. could melt. Like you're just totally missing the point. Or like here. when snakes could talk. Yeah, let's try and find in the fossil record if snakes had any larnixes or something. Yeah, like that. yeah I mean yeah. that's just so goofy. Well, this is talking about the multiple literal sense we talked about last time too, right? Is in you know the Bible. We, it's it's necessary for prayer, for biblical study, for intellectual formation. That the first thing you need to do when studying scripture is get as close as you can to the literal meaning of the text, right? The literal historical context, all these things. Um, the tools of the historical critical method are great for this, right? So, and then Aquinas will say, like, you have to figure out literally what's he saying, right? And then from there, you can look at the moral interpretation, the, the, the personal interpretation, all these other kind of ways of reading the text as well, right? Um, so it's really important to know the literal interpretation because that's the foundation. And then you can go from there and they can both still be right. It's a both and, not mm -hmm. an either or. Yeah, I had a uh, intro to New Testament class where the professor gave this silly little analogy that always stuck with me. He said, uh, if, um, if you're leaving for the day and your wife says, honey, it's raining cats and dogs, and you run outside ex excitedly hoping to find a new pet, you've taken her literally and totally missed her point. Yeah. Right? Her point was to get an umbrella. Uh, this is a, a great analogy here for talking about what can happen when we don't realize the kind of literature we're reading in the mm -hmm. Bible. Is it poetry? Is it apocalypse? Is it philosophy? Is autobiography? It hyperbole? Hyperbole, yeah. Like, this is why I say over and over again, English teachers make great Bible readers because they, uh, they're clued into this sort yeah. of stuff. Well, it's like when Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole, everybody. Mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. cut off mm -hmm. any body parts. Yep. And when Jesus says, become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven... Once again, hyperbole. Mm -hmm. uh, don't pull an origin mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and cut off the man parts because uh, yeah. Jesus said so. <laughs> not a great move, guys. Yeah, don't not do it. the best decision you've ever made in your life. Don't do uh, it. So overall, like I'm happy that we, we read this book. Uh, he he did bring up some good points. Um, he brought up some some cool things too, and it's just I think it was I think it was cool. I think it was a cool view of of the Bible in general, divine counsels and whatnot. Yeah, I want to close here with this little section from his uh, book here at the very end, his Still. last little paragraph. So spoiler alert if you haven't read so th this so far, but uh, his prayer for readers, and he hasn't talking, he hasn't spoken too much about his particular particular blah, 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 intentions for us, but uh, he shows his hand here, which is kind of nice. 
Finally, my prayer for readers is that God will use this book in your life the way he has used its context in my own content in my own spiritual journey to marvel at the intricacy of the biblical narrative, to be blessed by the love of God for his human children, and to acknowledge the role of the unseen world in the inheritance of salvation. Boom. Pretty rad. Yeah, I think his heart was definitely in the right place with this book. Like, I, I enjoyed his, his attempt as honesty, and even though we had our qualms, we had our, you know, our tiffs, we would probably want to arm wrestle him on a couple of things. Yeah. Um, but I think 75%, 80%. Is hey, that's a good number. Yeah, it's yeah. passing. It's passing. Yeah, I might say 71. That's fair. So it's yeah. a C minus. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> certainly passed. But I th- uh, do we agree with him more than we disagree? For, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So uh, stay tuned here in a second. We're going to give you our spoiler slash sneak peek into our next miniseries. But thank you, everybody, for joining us on Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krauss. I'm Ryan Pollock. And we'll see you next time. God bless y'all. Peace. All right, fam jam. Well, we hope you enjoyed this mini series on the unseen realm uh, by Michael Heiser. It's a fun read. It was awesome. So our next little mini series, when Ryan comes back from not sleeping for a month, we're actually going to do something kind of cool. Uh, it's a bit, kind of a big undertaking. We've never tried this before. And we're going to take you through all the books of the New Testament. So we're going to walk with you and give a brief introduction into each book, kind of give some context, talk about author, and we're almost like basically doing an introduction to the New Testament book over each over each book. Um, and it's going to be fun and no idea how long it's going to take, but it's going to be a good time. And so and we invite you to once again, give us a review, share this podcast with your friends and family and join us next time on Catholics with Bibles. God bless. <laughs>